Hello, welcome to Lung Cancer Voices, a Lung Cancer Canada podcast. My name is Christina Sitt. You may recognize me if you listen to our What's New In webinar series. This special edition of Lung Cancer Voices has been adapted from the live webinar. If you like these webinars and the Lung Cancer Voices podcast, please don't forget to like or subscribe. Thank you for your support. Hello. My name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, a medical oncologist and president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series of podcasts, I'm interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country, indeed in the world, to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Everyone and welcome to our What's New in series. Today we're very fortunate, and and it's a very special webinar um, that we are doing in partnership with the Canadian Mesothelioma uh, Foundation. And um, our the title of our webinar today is What's New in Mesothelioma. My name is Christina Sitt, and I am with the team at Lung Cancer Canada. Thank you to everyone for joining us today, and thank you especially to our West Coast members who are getting up very early for this. Uh, webinar. We have a very special one planned for you today. And um, I'm before I pass it over to Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, just a couple of housekeeping notes. Um, if you have questions and answers, we are going to have a discussion at the end. Please put them into the question and answer session and we will uh, collect them at, at the end and be assured that rest assured that we will be addressing them. We are also streaming this webinar live on Facebook as well. So without further ado, I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price. Thanks, Christina. So um, welcome everybody to the latest in our What's New series. We've, we've done a number of webinars over the last few months of what's new in various aspects of lung cancer. And you can see those on the Lung Cancer Canada website or they're also being released as podcasts on the Lung Cancer Voices podcast channel. And we've got a slight, um, a slight deviation, but not really too much uh, today, where we're going to talk about mesothelioma, which um, is not a classic lung cancer. It's more a cancer of the lining of the lung, and we're going to hear about that in detail coming up. Uh, we're running this with the Canadian Mesothelioma Foundation, which is a, is a, a volunteer-run charity dedicated to raising awareness about mesothelioma and its link to asbestos exposure. It supports mesothelioma patients and their families by providing information about resources and online support groups. Um, CMF is developing a national health network, bringing together health professionals virtually to share knowledge and, and strengthen the Canadian response to mesothelioma prevention, diagnosis, treatment, and cure. And recently, actually, they, the CMF have funded a, a professorship in mesothelioma research at uh, UHN, the University Health Network in Toronto, which is the first such professorship in Canada. So we're really thrilled that CMF is uh, joining us to support this educational event. Um, we have uh, two um, special guests that I'm going to be um, moderating a discussion with. Uh, so firstly, um, Dr. Anna Novak is a professor of medicine at the University of Western Australia in Perth. And um, it's uh, the 12 hours ahead of uh, where we are, so 9 p.m. in the evening. So we, we really appreciate Dr. Novak joining us for this. She's really a, um, a world-renowned uh, clinician and researcher in mesothelioma. She's the director of the National Center for Asbestos-Related Diseases, or NCARD, which is based in Perth. 
Uh, she's a board member of IMIG, which is the International Mesothelioma Interest Group, uh, and recently co-chaired the, the IMIG meeting, which was, uh, which was uh, we were all hoping to be in Brisbane uh, in Australia last year, but it was deferred and became a virtual meeting uh, just a few weeks ago. And then Dr. Quincy Chu is an associate professor at the University of Alberta and a medical oncologist um, in Edmonton. Uh, he's a member of the board of the Canadian Mesothelioma Foundation and a member of the Medical Advisory Committee at Wine Cancer Canada. Um, and also uh, really pertinent to our discussion today, uh, Quincy is the principal investigator or the lead researcher on a major international clinical trial uh, look, looking at immunotherapy in mesothelioma, which has been one of the hot topics this year. So we'll get to that again a bit later. So that's uh, enough of me. What I'll do is now I'll kind of guide us through some questions and discussions with Drs. Novak and Chu, and then we'll get to some questions at the end. So please put your questions in the Q&A or the chat box. Okay, right. So Anna, coming to you first. So we'll start with a sort of mesothelioma 101. Could you just really start by explaining to us what exactly is mesothelioma how, and how common is it? Thank you, Paul. Uh, well, mesothelioma is a cancer of the lining of the lung, and the lining of the lung is also called the pleura. And uh, the lung has a layer of pleura on the outside, and then the wall of the chest, the ribs and muscles of the chest, have a layer of pleura on the inside. Uh, so what you have is the lung uh, with two layers of pleura, and normally some tiny bit of space and fluid in between them that allows the lung to slip around as you breathe. Uh, and so mesothelioma as a cancer of the lining of the lung uh, starts in one of those layers that's otherwise as thin as glad wrap and, uh, and then thickens up to uh, encase the lung eventually like a rind around an orange. And what I say to my patients is that it starts like a kumquat and then a mandarin and then an orange and then a grapefruit. So you have this rind around the lung that gets thicker as it grows. And just like an orange, it can also grow into the segments of that orange. So it's quite different from uh, what we think of as a normal lung cancer, which may start like a marble or a pea inside the lung. Uh, and Unlike many other cancers, mesothelioma tends to cause most of its problems where it's growing in the lung, that, in, the, in the pleura that it started in, rather than being a cancer that spreads a lot to other parts of the body, uh, although that certainly can happen. Paul, would you like me to discuss some of the symptoms of mesothelioma? Yes, please. What, um, yeah. Yes. So uh, what happens when people develop mesothelioma is that they'll often uh, start off by feeling breathless and that may be because there's fluid that's built up in between those two layers of the pleura. Uh, and so people who, who feel breathless uh, because one of their lungs is full of fluid uh, may seek medical attention because of that and get a diagnosis. But otherwise, people might seek medical attention because uh, they're getting some pain in their chest uh, or because they're losing weight and getting night sweats and feeling, uh, feeling fatigued and having some very uh, non-specific symptoms that uh, tell them and their doctor that something's going on. And um, so I like your fruit analogy from um, 
you, I, I would say a kumquat is an elite fruit. So <laughs> I've used an apple skin, but maybe I'll adapt to now kumquats and then going to to the, the oranges and grapefruits, getting that, that thickening. That's very intuitive imagery of, of what happens to the pleura. In, in Western Australia or in, in Australia, is mesothelium a common cancer? So Western Australia actually has the highest incidence in the world of mesothelioma. If we look at Australia as a whole, we're second after the United Kingdom. But unfortunately, in Western Australia, we actually take this, this dubious prize. Uh, so that's about 100 people per year out of our population of two and a half million or so. And right. that's because we had an asbestos mine and mill in Western Australia. Okay. Well, maybe that's a good point to, to switch to Dr. Chu then, because Canada doesn't have the most fantastic track record in terms of mining and exporting asbestos. But, but maybe, Quincy, before we talk about Canada's asbestos history, we're sort of letting the cat out of the bag here that asbestos is the risk factor. Could you just talk a little bit about asbestos as a risk factor and and maybe what are other reasons people might develop mesothelioma aside from asbestos? So uh, yes, absolutely, Paul. So asbestos is probably the most common cause of uh, most common risk factors for mesothelioma. There are many different types of asbestos fibers, but it tends to be the, uh, the smaller fibers seems to be more likely to be carcinogenic. In terms of where we can get exposed, right, at least in Canada, in the past, where right, we have a lot of imported cases that are from the UK, probably around the wartime when they were working right, in the shipyard, and that is where they got exposed. Aside from that, right, we do have shipping industry out in the BC coast or right, Halifax and those areas. And so that's as another right, group of people and people working in asbestos mines, such as in Quebec, and also used to be in Newfoundland in the uh, early 1990s, which was closed right, uh, in the 1950s, 1960s. Other industries, right, it could be uh, insulators, so in Alberta, the people who line the pipelines, uh, the uh, power plants, or right, that would be. Uh, we also know that, so some of the brick pets, right, in the cars in the good old days are also asbestos. And I learned from actually patients of mine that uh, if you're a hairdressers, during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, you get exposed to asbestos as well because the uh, blow dryer, as well as the uh, the, one, uh, the machine that is used for perming out hair, also have that as well. So other risk factors uh, we have—I actually seen it right myself. It is people who have a radiation to the middle of the chest for Hodgkin's disease, uh, and also or a whole abdomen radiation, or right, for some types of uh, ovarian cancers, etc. That would be too. There are some other uh, uh, types of uh, mineral fibers uh, that is also very prevalent in uh, Turkey area, tends to be also a risk factor. And then there is a very, very small number of people, uh, less than 1% of a patient who develop mesothelioma is because of a genetic mutations of a gene called BAP1. And uh, if you lost both copies of this gene, uh, which is responsible for repair of uh, DNA damages, then to patients can develop mesothelioma, uh, both in the chest as well as in the abdomen. And there may be family or personal history of other cancers, such as melanoma of the skin or of the eye. Some people have kidney cancer, pancreas cancer, and breast cancer, et cetera. 
So those are the common ones that we will uh, we we will see on a daily basis. Just uh, if there's uh, people who didn't quite catch the both lose both copies. Remember, we, we when our, our genetic makeup, we get one copy of all our genes from our from our mother, one copy from our father. And so if and and what Dr. Chu is saying, if we lose both copies of this specific gene called BAT1, that that can increase the risk. And can I just come back to you just to touch a little bit more on asbestos? So asbestos is the risk factor, and we've heard that there's you know in lagging around piping and mining, and I also have a, a patient who got it from brake pads. But how does the asbestos fiber actually cause the cancer? And and it, does it happen quickly when, after you're exposed? Do you if if somebody listening to this feels they were exposed to some asbestos last week, are they going to be at risk? Um, well, the, the quick answer there, Paul, is that no, they're not going to be at risk uh, because it takes a very long time, what we call the latency period, between being exposed to asbestos fibres and developing mesothelioma. And that's one of the reasons why many people with mesothelioma are older in age. Uh, but what happens is that the asbestos fibres, particularly the nastiest sort called chrysidolite, are just the right size and shape like a needle when you breathe them in, they go into the lung and they actually go all the way to the outside of the lung, to the pleura, and uh, like a little needle, they penetrate the pleura and they lodge there and uh, and, and they, they never go away. The body can't get rid of asbestos fibres. And over many years, uh, and we think that causing inflammation and damage to the DNA of the cells of the pleura is uh, the underlying cause of how uh, asbestos eventually causes DNA damage that um, leads to a cancer. Uh, but it does take often between, well, ar around 30 to 40 years, but sometimes as little as 20 years and sometimes as long as 50 years. Right, yeah, many decades of this latency period, yeah. So I, I remember, I think when I was uh, training, somebody showed me a slide of asbestos in, in ancient times, which was uh, sort of, it was a mythical salamander with a, um, an asbestos coat. And it was um, asbestos, I think initially means unquenchable because it was, they put this salamander in the fire and it wouldn't burn. But of course the, the ancients wouldn't have developed mesothelioma maybe because they wouldn't have lived long enough from other reasons to get it. And we've talked about um, you, you know, in, inhaling the fibers and they get out to the pleura, but you can get mesothelioma in other parts of the body as well. Anna, I'll come back to you for this. Yeah, uh, so you can get mesothelioma in the peritoneum, and that is the lining of the lungs in the, uh, sorry, the lining of the organs in the abdomen, so the lining of the bowel and, around the, the, the liver and other, other organs. Uh, and when that happens, people can get a buildup of fluid in the abdomen and their symptoms come from the abdomen. It seems to be perhaps a little less related directly to uh, asbestos exposure than uh, the pleural mesothelioma and uh, probably a bit more genetic linkage there. Uh, but it's certainly, people can swallow asbestos and uh, you can find asbestos fibers in the peritoneum. And then much rarer than that is mesothelioma around the lining of the testis in men uh, and mesothelioma around the lining of the heart called the pericardium uh, in men or women. 
neither of those are very common at all. Okay, thank you. So just to wrap up on asbestos, um, and Quincy, I'll come back to, to you with this. You mentioned that Canada mined asbestos for many years and, and the last mine um, in Quebec's only in, in Quebec, last mines in Quebec only closed in 2011. Um, and in fact, there's a town, the town of asbestos is in uh, Quebec. Could you talk a little bit about Canada's slightly questionable history in public health with asbestos? So asbestos actually, uh, as you say, was actually first mined in Quebec in the 18, late 1800s. And um, around the 1920s, that some of the people working as asbestos mine or related industry are starting to have a lot of illness associated, either it is to do fibrosis of the lung or at that time not even being said, it's called mesothelioma. And they uh, make some complaints right to the union about that. And that's what I led to some right, investigations by uh, the, at the University of McGill as to what's going on. And in the 1950s or so, that some of the initial research using one, uh, looking at one of the fibers called a chrysotile, say that there is no relationship. But around similar kind of time that South Africa is trying to report mesothelioma and lung cancer being related to asbestos exposure. So Canada still continued to mine it, but mostly is the use of the chrysotile, but not some of the other fibers. And then in the 1980s, Ontario formally banned most of the asbestos fibers except chrysotile based on the um, results right from McGill. And then not until the 90s, then finally, or that even the chrysotile was actually found to be associated, what well, finally was condemned to be related to asbestos, uh, to be related to mesothelioma, and that was banned as well. But as you mentioned, right, the, the mine in Quebec right, continues to be in operation. Uh, at some point in the early 2000, because financially it's not uh, as profitable, due to asbestos gone down, then we, they actually stopped the production. And then a few years later, they got some money back and then reopened the mine. So in terms of a federal government, they didn't do much of anything until probably in the early in the uh, uh, late 2000 to 2010, there is a lot of trade union push right, to say, ban asbestos, both mining as well as exports. But at that time, the federal government right, did not join the Rotterdam uh, 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 conference. And then not until 2016, when the, federal when the current federal government took over, they finally banned asbestos uh, in both the mining as well as the export. So now the government is doing a bit more work right, over asbestos uh, related illness, as well as awareness. Uh, both right, uh, within Canada as well as internationally. So we do have a very dark history when it comes to asbestos. Thanks for that. Yeah, I, I, I moved to Canada um, 12 years ago and it always struck me as well, a bit embarrassing, frankly, that, that Canada had banned asbestos to be used in construction in, in our own country many decades ago, but only finally stopped exporting asbestos to um, particularly developing countries 10 years ago. And it was it was 2018 that, uh, that we finally signed up to the Rotterdam Convention that recognizes asbestos as a dangerous substance. Okay, that's the background. So um, let's go through the clinical impacts then of mesothelioma. And 
Anna, you, 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 you mentioned uh, earlier the kind of symptoms that often people present with uh, feeling out of breath because of a fluid buildup or maybe some pain because that, that rind is thickening around the ribs and under the chest wall. So when, when someone is diagnosed, is, is this something, is this the kind of disease where surgery is, is, uh, is helpful? And uh, I, I know I'm throwing a bit of a controversial question at you, so we'll, maybe we'll, we'll get different uh, inputs on this. But, but to start with, let's talk about surgery. Yeah. Yeah, um, look, absolutely. Surgery is really controversial around the world. And uh, I guess uh, pe people and centres and teams that uh, strongly believe that surgery is effective and, and others possibly don't know uh, what underpins most advances in medicine is what we call randomized clinical trials, where you have one treatment, the old trend, and you compare it with the new treatment and you do statistical tests and find out whether uh, the treatment that you must be better actually is better to do that, uh, or certainly hasn't for many years. And so what we've seen is some information around people who've had surgery, many of whom may be younger and fitter and have less significant disease and those people appear to do better. Uh, we're not sure whether they appear to do better because of the surgery or because they are younger and fitter with less advanced disease. So in the US, uh, sorry, the UK, a clinical trial um, called the MARS trial tried to tease this out uh, and compared very um, aggressive surgery of the pleura and lung, removing the whole lung from that side and, and patching everything else up again. Uh, they compared that to um, chemotherapy treatments uh, alone, and they didn't show that it was um, any better to have surgery. They've just completed a trial doing a less aggressive surgery with chemo. So here we're really waiting for that um, clear evidence to give us some really good guidance as to whether surgery is the right thing to do or not. But uh, as, as I said, and as Paul said earlier, it is controversial and uh, Quincy may paint a different picture. So Anna, as you were going through that, this, the connection just went a bit wobbly. So if I can just, I'll just sort of summarize that there was that first surgery you talked about was this very extensive surgery where you remove the whole lung and the lining of the lung and patch everything up. And in that UK trial, a group got chemotherapy, a group got chemotherapy and surgery, and it didn't seem to do better with surgery. Um, and then when it went a bit grainy uh, on the connection, it was that the second type of operation where the trial is finished now and we're waiting for the results. And what was that operation? What did they do in the, the new study? So that was an operation called a pleurectomy decortication, and that's where they just take the lining of the lung, the pleura, uh, and they take as much tumour as they can without actually taking the whole lung out. They still need to patch and repair uh, the diaphragm and the lining of the heart, uh, but they do leave a functioning lung and uh, there are fewer people with that sort of slightly less aggressive operation still a huge operation but uh, fewer people who will actually die as a result of the surgery which is of course really important right right of course 
Quincy, what happens in Alberta? Is, is surgery, uh, do you guys believe in surgery or not? Uh, what's, the, what's the situation? So, all right, in Alberta, I don't think we actually do a lot of, we actually don't do the operations in general. Uh, we do like the parectomy just to make a diagnosis with large amount of tissues. And that's usually what we do. We kind of very selected uh, the number of patients that will be sent to either Toronto or sometimes to New York uh, with uh, Dr. Rouge to do parectomy. And uh, occasional patients will get extrapneumonectomy. Those are very young people with one side of the disease, very good lung functions, and those will be the candidate. And, uh, and our surgeons right, will do rounds with us and say, well, do we think right, this is right, possible? Uh, whenever we see any, the two sides of the lung is difference in size, whenever we see that there is some chest wall invasions, those will, those will be ruled out. So I don't think we have more than one or two cases for a year will be sent for those yeah. procedures. I guess it's challenging when it's not a common condition. But can I just clarify with both of you though, that this second operation, the subject of the new trial, this pleurectomy where you just remove the lining, the, the goal of that surgery is, is that a cure or is it just a control? Anna? Uh, well, look, I think despite the surgeons wishing that their goal would be was cure, I think it's very, very hard to use that word in mesothelioma, even with very aggressive extrapleural pneumonectomy surgery. So even if the goal may be cure, it's very unlikely to have that end result. Okay. Now, there is another strategy that's going on in, in Canada. In, Toronto's got a, uh, a program that they've been running, Dr. Deep Rose, the surgeon, Dr. John Cho, as a radiation oncologist. They've had a, a protocol called the SMART protocol and now a new one called the SMARTER. And I think they're aiming for a third one called the SMARTEST. Quince, are you familiar with this, where they do an operation, but they try and give this very high doses of radiation before surgery um, and then immediately go to an operation? So what they do is that uh, the initial, so let's go back to the initial SMART trial. The initial SMART trial is to do uh, the chemotherapy first, right, to hopefully uh, lessen the lining of the, uh, of, the, of the lung to make surgery a little bit easier. And then they go for the so-called extra pneumonectomy and then do the chest radiation. And they find that there's just a lot more toxicity right, to the uh, other lung and therefore uh, it is not as favorable in terms of toxicity. Then the way they thought about right, is that uh, by having right, your original lungs that are involved in the mes with mesothelioma to be radiated at a high dose uh, using some special right, uh, radiation, just literally radiate right, the, uh, the pleura together with right, a very small rim of the lung. Then right, they can go in and remove the lung, whether it is a parectomy or extrapreneumonectomy, and then right, whether they will get chemotherapy afterwards, depending on whether the lymph nodes are involved in the middle of the chest. Uh, that right, has recently been published and saying that it does seem right, to have a better outcome. Uh, but right, again, as Anna pointed out, is that those types of procedures 
are you really are reserved for patients that are very well, young, fit, uh, because of the uh, side effects from the radiation and surgery, put a lot of demands on the heart and lung function. So whether it is applicable to every places or whether it is right, uh, ultimately or it will go into general practice in most sites, uh, that remains to be seen. And just when you heard Dr. Chu mention extra pleural pneumonectomy that, or EPP, we sometimes call it, that's the, that's the big operation where you take out the lining of the lung and the whole lung itself. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting about whether these kind of very novel and innovative approaches that are happening in Toronto, are they, uh, are they going to be what breaks through and becomes the standard of care? Or is it what we, we've been referring to as really patient selection that you're, it's only the fittest patients who are gonna live longer anyway who, who get to have these procedures. Our colleague in, in um, British Columbia, Dr. Chris Lee, likes to tell the story of uh, the soup stone of soldiers who traveled through France after the Napoleonic Wars with this magic stone that would make delicious soup. Um, and when they would go through villages, they would then tell the villagers this and the villagers would crowd around and start throwing in carrots and meat and potatoes to make it more tasty. Um, and the soldiers would say, no, 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 it's the soup stone. And uh, so the question is, is the soup delicious because of the stone or because of everything else? And, and do mesothelioma patients live longer because they were gonna live longer anyway or, or because of these, these techniques. And, and we don't really know all of the results yet. Okay, uh, let's, let's move away from surgery. I think we've kind of showed that this is a, a really an area under research. We're waiting for trial results with some controversy. Quinta, you mentioned a couple of times that chemotherapy. Is chemotherapy helpful in mesothelioma? So I vividly remember the results of that, right, which was presented in a year that's just before I finished my medical oncology uh, training. And that is, sorry, to compare a drug called Pemetrexit and Cisplatin versus Cisplatin. And it was published right, in early 2000, in the year of 2000. And that actually did show, or I compare to cisplatin alone, that there is an improvement in the outcome in terms of how long people live by approximately about four months. So 14 months with the combination and then with cisplatin will be about 10 months. And that's why chemotherapy become fairly standard right, in the patients right, that we see on a day-to-day -day basis. But we do notice or over the years is that certain types of mesothelioma patients benefit more. Uh, some of them will kind of wow us, or that they live many, many years, uh, need a couple of years, they have a great response, a long response. And those are the patients that have what we call the epithelioid types of mesothelioma. This is the slower growing type. Uh, when you look at it under microscope, it's kind of like kind of blue little cells, right? That line the mesothelioma, doesn't look too aggressive. But sorry, there are some patients about 20, 30%, but all depends on which country you live in that have or some of the more aggressive types that are either called the sarcomatoid or have both the sarcomatoid and the epithelial component in the mesothelioma, it tends to be less sensitive to chemotherapy. So we give it sorry, in the past just because this is the only thing that we have. And after that type of chemotherapy, that's, there's really nothing standard or right, that is right, being licensed in Canada at the least uh, that we give. But of course, based on some of the work from Anna and some other groups, uh, some other chemotherapy drugs like uh, Venerobin, Gemcidine has been given. So basically, if I, 
if I get that right, you're telling us that chemotherapy, particularly this combination of platinum and pemetrexed, does help people live longer than not receiving chemotherapy. And uh, but it, it's really the benefit is in well, it is the majority, but the majority of people who have this more favorable subtype of mesothelioma. Yes. Uh, Anna, do you use chemotherapy frequently? Would you have a different perspective to Dr. Chu? Uh, no, I have exactly the same perspective. I mean, I think one of the things about chemotherapy is we can, we've, we've been using it for a long time. It does work in some people and in some people it works really well. It's difficult to tell in advance who it's going to work well in, uh, apart from, I guess, an expectation that people with the sarcomatoid mesothelioma, it's less likely to work. Uh, but uh, we certainly can see really good tumour shrinkage and relief of symptoms, and sometimes that can outweigh any side effects. We've got a lot better at managing side effects since the early 2000s, so we've got a lot better drugs to manage uh, nausea. Uh, chemotherapy is certainly an option that can be valuable. And look, the other thing about chemotherapy is we can tell pretty quickly whether it's working or not. So if you do a CT scan at the beginning and say, this is where we started, and then you do another CT scan in six weeks time, and you can get an idea really after just six weeks, whether it's working for that individual. Okay. Now we're going to talk about immunotherapy in a minute, but um... And I didn't put this question on the ones I sent you for prep. So apologies for that. But, you know, some people can't, can't have chemotherapy for one reason or another. Maybe they choose they don't not to, or, or they have other medical conditions which make it too hazardous or, or they're, they're not strong enough. If you see people in your clinic who have symptoms from their mesothelioma, but are not well enough for chemotherapy, what are the other sorts of treatment techniques that you would consider? Is, is, is it just pain medication or chest tubes or radiation? Or what, what kind of things would you, would you talk to people about? Anna, why don't we start with you for this one? Okay. I think if, if people have come with a newly diagnosed mesothelioma and they haven't yet seen somebody who specialises in cancer care, there's often quite a lot that we can do to help symptoms. It's because of the fluid that can build up in the lung, it's really important to control and manage that fluid. And there are many different ways of doing that that are often quite successful in helping people breathe better. Pain control is really important. And clearly there are many different ways of doing that as well. And also looking at ways of uh, helping night sweats, helping appetite loss uh, and weight loss, and uh, generally making people feel better. I think it can also be helpful to get people to see a palliative care physician. In uh, Australia, we can send people to a palliative care physician for symptom control and not just for end of life care uh, and clinical psychology as well. Uh, sometimes they improve enough with symptom control that they become uh, fit for treatment. And you mentioned radiotherapy as well, Paul. Radiotherapy can be something that will help control pain in particular locations. 
Ritzi, uh, any any anything else that you would you would think of, or do you have a similar suite of options as Dr. Novak? So uh, we do have very similar setup or, as that of Dr. Novak. Uh, the only uh, we also uh, in the past, right when we try to uh, prevent the reaccumulation of the fluid within the chest, we will do what we call pyridesis. What I've been told is that the talc is getting increasingly difficult to get, and the real talc or, or the good talc, which is the French talc, which also or has been recently found may be lined with asbestos. So we have been having difficulty getting it ready to be used. So we now actually, almost most of the patients will have enough fluid in their chest. We'll put in something called the Plurex catheter, which is a um, silver line tubing that puts into the chest on a semi-permanent basis, probably quite permanent, or if a majority of mesothelioma patients. And then right, there is a one-way valve at the end, and then uh, home care will come in to drain the fluid on a regular basis. Uh, and then sorry, that is very helpful for the patients, both from a symptoms point of view, and also you don't have to get them into the hospital to put a needle into the chest to drain the fluid because occasionally we can puncture the lung. So this is comfort and also cost saving are ultimately being found. And so we offer those types of two to majority of the patients. Yeah. Great. So that Plurex cap is a very thin, soft tube that kind of coils under a dressing and a nurse can come out at home and drain it when it's needed. And they're yeah, very effective. And you mentioned pleurodesis. So I'll just explain that briefly. But before Plurex catheters, you would put a tube in in between those two layers of pleura that Dr. Novak described at the beginning, where the fluid accumulates. You drain the fluid and then you instill like a slurry, which is made of talc. You often uses talc to, as the basis of the slurry. And that causes the, the lining of the pleura to become very sticky. And then once the fluid's out, they can stick together and it prevents the fluid coming back, but a bit more complex than doing the tubes. Okay, so let's move on to, let's move on to immunotherapy. Um, if, if we'd had this meeting uh, a couple of years ago, in fact, Ottawa hosted the last International Mesothelioma Interest Group before Dr. Novak's version. And at that point, immunotherapy was, you know, very, exciting, but, but we've had a ton of good news in the last 12 months. Dr. Novak, maybe you could start, what is immunotherapy and, and what's the big news in mesothelioma? Yeah, so immunotherapy is a, a way of encouraging the body to fight the cancer on its own terms. So it uses the immune system to fight the cancer. But normally your immune system may see the cancer and know that it's a little bit different from the rest of your body, but it still has some, some shields and barriers that say, actually, I'm kind of a bit like you, so don't fight me because you'll run into trouble. So the new immunotherapies uh, come and I guess, encourage the cancer to drop those shields. They take the brakes off the immune system's attempts to fight the cancer and they, they free up uh, the ability of the immune system to, to do its job. Of course, that can still be more or less successful in individuals. And there's a lot of research at the moment trying to figure out exactly why immunotherapies work better in some people than in others. And by causing, by unleashing the immune system against cancer, they can also unleash the immune system against other normal parts of the body. And that's where all the side effects come from. 
Uh, and uh, the big news for immunotherapy in mesothelioma is that um, recently it was shown that by using double immunotherapy, a combination called ipilimumab and nivolumab, uh, we often shorten that to ipinevo, the, that people particularly with sarcomatoid and biphasic mesothelioma rather than epithelioid mesothelioma uh, can live substantially longer and do better uh, than they did with chemotherapy alone. So that was a randomised clinical trial uh, that has really confirmed that result particularly strongly for people with the sarcomatoid and biphasic mesothelioma. And that was the subtype um, that, uh, that you and Dr. Chu were saying really traditionally didn't do so well with chemotherapy. So now we've got a chemotherapy option for the epithelioid and an immunotherapy option for the people who don't have the epithelioid type. Would you use immunotherapy though in the epithelioid type as well? Does it work in for them as well, or is it just chemo for those, those people? It, it clearly works in some people with epithelioid mesothelioma, uh, but it's very hard to, we, we haven't yet teased out who is going to get the most benefit. Uh, and it looks like if you're not benefiting from immunotherapy, then chemotherapy can actually be better at uh, controlling the disease in those early months. Uh, so we've got a lot of work to tease out uh, who would benefit the most from immunotherapy in epithelioid patients. There are some other ways that are under uh, examination. So probably Dr. Chu is going to talk about those. Uh, and you know, certainly it's um, very reasonable to look at using immunotherapy at some point along the pathway for people with any type of mesothelioma now. Okay. So there, there was some other research that actually was, was reviewed at, at, at the recent meeting that you co-chaired of for people receiving immunotherapy if they've already had chemo. Could you comment on that? Uh, yes, that's right. So single immunotherapy agents can actually, as a third line uh, treatment or, or a, probably as a second line treatment as well. So after previous chemotherapy can also help people to do better and live longer. And that didn't seem to matter whether they had epithelioid or biphasic mesothelioma, but uh, they were only having one uh, of the double immunotherapy um, brew. So it seems that the, the ipinevo combination, there's something about that that is much more effective in the biphasic and sarcomatoid mesothelioma. Great, thank you. So Quincy, I'll come to you. So Dr. Novak very you know, nicely described there that this double immunotherapy seems to be better than chemotherapy, particularly in, in, in certain subtypes of mesothelioma. So the natural question that springs to my mind is, well, why not add them together? Why not give immunotherapy, either one immunotherapy or two immunotherapies? Why don't you add them to the chemo? And conveniently, you're the lead investigator on a study which is, which is looking at that exact question. And it's a Canadian study, the Canadian Cancer Trials Group. So shout out to you and to Canada and collaborators. Could you tell us about your study and when can we anticipate results? So uh, this is a study that was conceptually array, uh, made in Canada. And I was having the privilege array, of leading the trial. And then we have the French group as well as the Italian group that joined us. So this study is, as you say, 
we have already know the tools that works, which is chemotherapy. And all right, there is right, some evidence at the time when we designed the trial that an immunotherapy drug, uh, which is called PD-1 inhibitor, pembrolizumab, also right, shows some activities in mesothelioma in those patients who got chemo before. And the side effect seems to be quite right, uh, reasonable. So given mesothelioma patients who are sicker, so we do that. And then uh, when the combinations was proposed, the lung cancer world started to use the combinations in trial and show that it is well tolerated. So we therefore compared the chemotherapy uh, pa treated patients with the chemotherapy and the pembrolizumab treated patients. And that was, uh, that's the essence of the trial. We have already finished the enrollment around the end of summer last year. And we're hoping already right, to get results maybe in the next, or at the early results, if available within the next few months. And then right, uh, we may have to wait longer all right, until the number of events is enough for us to report that. So, um, so that was a big international trial, Canada, France, Italy. So the, the trial that Dr. Novak referred to was chemotherapy or immunotherapy. This is chemotherapy or chemotherapy plus, plus one immunotherapy very similar combination of the chemo immunotherapy that we're all very familiar with using in lung cancer. Do you see, uh, you know, let's say that's a positive study as well. We don't know, but do you, do you have a sense of whether you would like to give, you know, what are the pros and cons maybe chemo plus one immunotherapy? I don't know. It seems to me, well, you have to give the chemo, but it's only one immunotherapy drug. Maybe that's easier but maybe the double immunotherapy is a good option because you could still use chemo anyway because you haven't used that yet. Do you have a sense of like pros and cons of these options? Dr. Novak, why don't I throw that to you first? Yeah, well, actually, we've got a similar study going on in Australia and the US, which is the DREAMER trial, which is actually very, very, very similar in design. Look, I think uh, there are certainly some people for whom the side effects of double immunotherapy can be really troublesome. And it seems that by combining chemotherapy and immunotherapy, we may be seeing less in terms of side effects. Uh, but I think we, we're going to struggle to know exactly how to use all of these until we go back to the laboratory. So in many of these clinical trials, uh, patients have also donated samples of their tumour for laboratory research and, uh, and, and blood tests from along the way. And uh, there's quite a lot of uh, sophisticated science going on at the back end to help uh, doctors guide their patients and help doctors guide the decisions and work out a more tailored and personalised approach to who gets what. Maybe staying in, in Western Australia, is, is there a financial issue here? These uh, immunotherapy drugs are expensive. Is, is giving two immunotherapy drugs substantially more expensive than one? What, what's happening in Australia? So it is substantially more expensive. However, we have been fortunate to be able to generally access immunotherapy for our patients uh, since the double immunotherapy became uh, available. And uh, we're also confident that uh, our government funded healthcare system is um, looking at that and will 
be a decision or announcement relatively soon uh, on availability. But uh, over the last five years or so, people have had to self-fund single immunotherapies to be able to get access. Yeah. And I, I should say that at the moment, we don't have any public funding of immunotherapy in Canada. Um, Lung Cancer Canada work with the Canadian Mesothelioma Foundation in supporting applications for approval of new drugs. And of course, the big one is, is the new immunotherapy combination. And the pharmaceutical company is at the moment providing those drugs to us free of charge uh, while we go through that process. When we do these webinars, when, when Christina appears on camera, that's the, that's the hook that we're being uh, yanked off stage. Uh, and uh, um, well, we'll stay on camera, but that um, Christina's gonna guide us through uh, a Q&A session. So Anna and Quincy, thank you for, for now for going through all of my questions and, and I'll pass this to Christina to moderate the rest of the meeting. Thank you so much. Uh, at this point of the meeting, I usually ask Dr. Wheatley Price to take off his uh, moderator hat because he is a very esteemed uh, uh, medical oncologist in his own right and joined the panel in answering some of the questions that we've had come in through email and chat. And really, let's start at the very beginning. One of the um, very, uh, as we all know, cancer um, is treated well if we could diagnose it early. So there's been a question come in about screening. Is there, we, we talk a lot about screening in lung cancer. Is there a screening for mesothelioma or research in that area being done? Maybe I'll direct this question to Dr. Nowak. Yeah, uh, so what we know is that asbestos actually causes lung cancer as well as mesothelioma. In fact, it possibly causes lung cancer at twice the rates that it does mesothelioma. Uh, it's just that it's really much harder to pin down a cause of lung cancer because many people also smoked or had other exposures. So uh, when people have been highly exposed to asbestos, uh, certainly at our site, they're able to take part in a screening review program, uh, which is gathering data on the effectiveness of screening. And what they found is that although when they find mesothelioma, even if it's early, it's still unlikely to be cured, what they can find is early lung cancers. And those early lung cancers that may be due to asbestos can then be uh, surgically removed and treated and cured. And so if you are somebody that does work in an, an industry that puts you at highest risk, what should you be telling your family physician? How do you work with your family physician to put that on to, uh, to be able to um, identify those early signs and symptoms? Maybe I'll direct that question to um, Dr. Chu. Well, I think right, um, right now, at least in Alberta uh, or most of Canada that I'm aware of, there is actually no formal screening programs. <clears throat> but many of my patients that have previous very extensive history of uh, asbestos exposure or pro-plaques, they're being followed right, with, uh, with the chest X-ray or sometimes CT by their family physician. And then uh, if they find something, they will send right, into the specialist, either the pulmonary docs or the surgeons or to have a look. So, but none of those data are really being gathered and look at it in totality to see whether this is actually a valuable, uh, a pro, uh, a valuable approach. But right overall, this is 
generally some of the patients have asbestos exposure substantially uh, went through. Christina, I think there's an uncomfortable truth here, which is that screening, the idea of the concept of screening is to detect a disease at an earlier stage when you can change what will happen to that patient and take them from a situation of um, a condition which can't be cured to a condition which can be cured. And we see that with mammograms for breast cancer and now CT scans for lung cancer. The, the problem is with mesothelioma, there's really no hard and fast treatment that we can, we can say is a cure. So, it, so the issue is really, as Dr. Novak said, you know, asbestos does also increase the risk of, of other diseases which can be cured. And then, I, we, which we haven't mentioned, but Dr. Chu mentioned right at the beginning this, this inherited type of lung cancer, of mesothelioma called BAP1 or BAP1. And so, if you do, if, if we do identify someone with a, with a BAP1 mesothelioma, you know, then there may be a role in, in screening them and their families to see who else might have that mutation because the BAP1 could also put people at risk of other cancers which which can be more easily cured than mesothelioma. And so if you're somebody that's living, that is at high risk, how do you monitor yourself for symptoms? But in, in lung cancer, we talk a lot about the persistent cough. So are they the similar symptoms that people should be looking out for? Perhaps Dr. Wheatley-Price? Well, I think we, we heard from Dr. Novak that the common symptoms of mesothelioma are um, uh, dyspnea or feeling sh out of breath, shortness of breath, um, and um, some pain around the chest wall. Um, and then if it gets a bit more advanced, people start to feel more fatigued. They can lose their appetite, lose weight, or even, even have these sort of drenching sweats at night where their you know, pajamas and sheets are drenched. Um, Certainly, if you get any of those symptoms, you know you need to see your, your family physician or, or, or seek some medical attention. But the common ones would be that sort of persistently, I'm not, I'm, my breathing's not as good as it usually was, or, or, or pain around the chest walls, particularly if you know you've been exposed to asbestos. And we have a comment also in the um, in the chat just to say that um, just to, that some people are not aware that they have asbestos um, in their homes as well, and that it's only revealed when they're doing renovations. So I guess at that point, it's very important to make sure that you um, have some professionals and experts uh, come and have some mitigation strategies. And um, we have also some questions. It, we should just reassure people though that if, if there is asbestos in your home. If it's behind like drywall, you know, that that's not fibers floating around in the air. It's it's really disturbed asbestos, which which is the risk. So if you're doing renovations, then you need to get out of the house uh, while they're happening or, and everybody has to wear, you know, appropriate PPE. Thank you for that. We also have some questions from um, some of our lung cancer patients and in, in asking about the differences in treatment between mesothelioma and lung cancer. Is there, we, we hear about molecularly different lung ca um, cancers and, and in immunotherapy, there's PDL one for, for um, lung cancer. Is that the same, is there same similar comparisons between in treatment of mesothelioma? Maybe this question I can direct to Dr. Nowak. Yeah, uh, so PDL1 uh, expression on the cancer is being examined very vigorously in mesothelioma as well. Uh, we certainly haven't got as 
detailed knowledge uh, as we do in lung cancer. And one of the difficulties with mesothelioma is that that tumour is often around the whole chest. And if you're taking a piece from one part of that and looking at it under the microscope, you actually don't know what's happening in another part of the mesothelioma. And it might be different uh, for pdl one expression. Uh, and it might also change over time. And the links just haven't been quite as strong uh, to confirm that PDL1 expression is as important as it is in lung cancer. So we're coming up to the top of the hour, and um, this is where I ask my final question to the panelists. And uh, for this particular to topic, I'm going to ask, um, and starting with Dr. Nowak, what do you think might be the game changer in how we improve survivorship with, uh, with uh, mesothelioma? Uh, well, look, I'm certainly hoping that um, chemoimmunotherapy, like, like uh, Dr. Chu is, that chemoimmunotherapy will be a game changer. Uh, I'm also really waiting on the results of the second clinical trial about surgery uh, from the UK. And uh, also looking at looking forward to the day when we can actually tailor our treatments a bit better to individual patients. So really uh, what will lead to the game changer is uh, more laboratory research in mesothelioma. So the idea of moving more towards personalised medicine as well for mesothelioma. Yeah, there are reasons why, why uh, mesothelioma isn't as well treated with targeted therapies as uh, lung cancers uh, because asbestos seems to cause losses of large chunks of, uh, of genes uh, rather than um, giving the cancer an on switch like it does, like happens in uh, lung cancer. Uh, but uh, there's, there's still things that we don't understand. Thank you. And so Dr. Chu? So I am with Anna, like right now, we haven't got a lot of so-called targeted therapy. There has been research from various parts of the world, particularly uh, from uh, uh, the uh, Italian groups as well as uh, from, uh, from uh, Hawaii that have been identifying what are those uh, so-called common chunks of, DNA, uh, of genes that are missing. And some of them may be able to give us some clues as to like what to do uh, with uh, in terms of drug treatment. And so I think all right, that would be the next wave of translating what we know are now, but probably more in the means in the in the near future of what else right can we do to improve upon what we are doing right now, either with chemotherapy or immunotherapy combination or both. So mm -hmm. lots still to understand and and, and know. I'm going to give the final word to our president, Dr. Wheatley Price. What do you, what do you feel would be the game changer? Thanks, Christina. Um, and thank you, Anna and Quincy for, for joining us for this. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, the three of us are all uh, medical <coughs> oncologists. So we, we often, we're doing the drug treatments um, and, you know, clearly immunotherapy is a big game changer. I might just change tack a little bit though. And we think about asbestos control uh, if we think about mesothelioma globally, um, you know, um, because of this long latency period from exposure to developing the disease, a lot of Western developed countries that have banned asbestos have now probably at or have just passed their peak of incidence of mesothelioma naturally, and it will naturally decline. Um, but there are many nations in the world that still 
uh, mine asbestos, well not many, but there are some nations that still mine asbestos. There are many nations, particularly in developing countries that use asbestos and have um, really don't have the asbestos control that, that we do. So I, I think there's a, there's a global health perspective to this uh, as well, to look outside of Australia and Canada to, to try and get this um, disease as, as one that's in the past. So prevention and more and more research and new treatments. Um, we're at the top of the hour. I am going to thank all of our panelists. And, um, thank you, Dr. Nowak, for spending your, your late evening with us. And uh, thank you, Dr. Chu, for getting up very early to join us today. And uh, thank you for Dr. Ruitley Price for moderating, the, moderating this session. I'm also going to thank all the um, everyone that has joined us today. And I hope you've enjoyed this webinar that's been hosted uh, by Lung Cancer Canada, as well as the Canadian Mesothelioma Foundation. If you're interested in helping us and making a difference and or sharing your story or or donating or volunteering with us, please visit either of our websites where we'll uh, also have information for you as well as information for our next webinar. So thank you so much for attending everyone and I wish you the best of day. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan on Twitter at lungcancer underscore can and on Instagram at Lung Cancer Canada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at lungcancercanada.ca.